Welcome. Welcome to the third installment of the Lavender Series, a special partnership with San Francisco Pride. And happy Pride Month. If you're just joining us for the first time and new to the Commonwealth Club, the Commonwealth Club is the longest and oldest running public affairs forum in the country. All of our virtual programming is provided to you for free. So if you're able and willing to support the work of the Commonwealth Club, visit commonwealthclub.org online and make a donation. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Our special uh, discussion is on LGBTQI immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers. If you're joining us live, we love the engagement. So send us your comments and your questions. Today's program is brought to you by Gilead and Comcast, and also a special thanks to San Francisco Pride legacy partners, such as Bud Light, Hilton San Francisco Union Square, KPIX 5 CBS Bay Area, Kaiser Permanente, Genentech, GLBT Historical Society, KBCW TV, Park 55 San Francisco, Smirnoff, Recology, and T-Mobile. And of course, thank you to San Francisco Pride for this special programming. And now I'm pleased to introduce to you our esteemed panel. We have Edwin Carmona Cruz, who is the co-director and paralegal of Pangea Legal Services, also a member of Free SF Coalition and an adjunct professor at University of San Francisco. We also have Melanie Nathan, who's an attorney and mediator, uh, human rights advocate, the executive director of African Human Rights Coalition, the country conditions expert for LGBTQI asylum cases, former vice president of San Francisco Pride, and former Marin Human Rights Commissioner. We have Anjali Remy, who has a master's of business executive, is president and board of directors of Parivar Bay Area, and also a member of the board of directors of San Francisco Pride, and Klaus Ume, who is a Nigerian asylee who migrated to the United States in 2017. Um, well, let's begin by, uh, you know, getting personal and sharing our stories. Um, and we'll share, you know, your own personal journey of uh, migrating or immigrating uh, to a new home. Let's start with Melanie. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you so much for having me on this panel and greetings to my fellow panelists. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Um, I immigrated to the United States of America um, over 30 years ago. And there's only one thing I want to say from my um, personal immigration experience. Two things. The first thing is my family were refugees from the Jewish pogroms in Eastern Europe. And they were not allowed into the United States of America and landed up in South Africa. And that's how I got to be born in South Africa. So USA has a huge history of not letting refugees in going back a very long time. Um, My personal journey here was during the apartheid era. And all I can say is being in a white skin and having English as my first language placed me at greater privilege than most people immigrating to this country. And even with that, my immigration journey was beyond tough. And I I don't want to get into it. I want to give more time to other people who might have had a, a longer, harder journey. I just want to acknowledge that it's tough, even for somebody in a white privileged skin with English as their first language. So for anybody else who is possibly of color coming into what is clearly a racist system, and anybody who does not have English as their first language has it extremely difficult 
in coming and immigrating to the United States of America, no matter which way you choose to do it. Thank you. Anjali. Good afternoon. I'm Anjali Remy, pronoun she, her, they, them. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you to my esteemed panelists for being here. Sharing our immigration journeys is fascinating, and I hope it's inspiring to others. We are all strangers from a different shore, and America has been the land of dreams for so many of us. For me, my journey began in the early 2000s when I first came to this country a month before 9-11. And I went to a very conservative part of America where I went through very many struggles of my identity. Um, I'm originally from India. I was born in the southern part of India, and I grew up there for the first 20, 20 so years of my life. And then I moved here because I needed to transition. I needed to be my full self. And this was the only plan that my mom and I could devise and arrive at to make it safer for me to exist. India is coming along, but the dignity of being trans is far from being present. And as I came to the US, I went to graduate school and then um, as I was fascinated by the bubble of San Francisco, I moved here in the early 2000s and very quickly got fired from my job. And because I was on a work visa, I had to leave the country. So I moved to Canada and I was a stateless person in Canada for seven years. And from there on, I went to finally find my way back into the US and I've been back here for about seven years and I became an American citizen last December. Um, and all I will say is that being a Canadian American, I claim to have a lot of uh, privilege, but I will say that the skin, the color of my skin, my accent still determine and make people ask, where are you really from? So I think this conversation is so important to break those stereotypes and not allow that racial profiling that unfortunately happens very systematically right now. Um, we'll talk more, but I'll just say that religion has played such a big role in my immigration process um, where it has been a boon and a blessing and a curse in many ways. So we'll touch on that. but. That's a little bit about my immigration story. Thank you, Anjali. Edwin. Good afternoon, everyone. And I'm so incredibly happy to be on this panel with these panelists. And thank you, Michelle. Um, so I'm the, the son of immigrants uh, from Mexico. I was born and raised in Azusa, California, in uh, uh, Southern California, if you know where that's uh, at. Um, you know, and I grew up around... Um, uh, family and community uh, talking about the fear of potentially being deported, of la migra, of the um, you know the discrimination that our folks face because they don't speak English and they uh, were not documented at the time. And so my family came to the United States at a time where um, you know there was a, uh, as people like to say, you know, immigration reform in the, in the mid '80s. 
And so because of the timing of my parents' arrival to the country, they were able to obtain status. Um, uh, however, years after when Mexico's uh, economy collapsed and there was a crisis, um, uh, most of my family members who immigrated to the country were not able to adjust. And so I grew up, um, you know, speaking Spanish is my first language. Uh, English is my second language. And so my mom, from a very young age, uh, she told me that as uh, someone who was born here, as someone who learned English very quickly, um, uh, you know, I have a responsibility to uh, be a vessel and to make sure that I use my privilege and uh, my the access that I have to resources to be able to help other uh, uh, people in my community. So, um, you know, with that said, uh, you know, I, I always think back about helping my mom, um, uh, study for the citizenship test, um, and help. And now at Pangea Legal Services, providing direct legal services, especially in the area of deportation defense, um, coupled with policy advocacy, community education and empowerment, um, has been such a blessing for me, uh, something that I've done, you know, for the rest, for the majority of my life. And I know that we'll be talking about, you know, the different intersections and the different issues and areas that um, LGBTQ asylum seekers and refugees are facing um, today. Uh, so I'll stop there, but that's just a little bit of, of my, of my journey. Thank you so much, Edwin and Klaus. Hello. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Um, it's, it's such an honor to be part of this um, panel to be able to share my story and um, um, hear the story of um, a lot of other people in this panel. So um, being um, a black Nigerian asylum seeker, it's been tough. It has its ups and downs and it's, it's been a, a journey because um, growing up in Nigeria, I lived in Nigeria for more than 30 years of my life and um, it's a beautiful country and I, I, I love my country, but being living in Nigeria as a gay man, there are a lot of laws against um, the LGBT community in Nigeria, and um, just being gay, you could get you, you could be in jail for fourteen years, and um, there, there are a couple of other terrible laws and things that um, that um, gay men face in Nigeria. So it's it's it was that decision. I was one of the people among my, my group of friends who decided that I was going to stick it out in Nigeria. And I tried, I did as much as I could do because I was part of the people who fought for the rights of the LGBT people in Nigeria. And it was, it was tough because I had a lot of harassment, a lot of police harassment, a lot of um, abuse. There's a lot of things that I went through in Nigeria that made me decide to move um, to the United States. And coming here, the first one year was really tough because I... It was really tough because I couldn't do much. I couldn't work. I couldn't have to live on 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 savings and things. And it was really tough. But um, it's a journey that I I think have helped me grow and become um, come more into myself. And it's it's with the help of um, groups and associations like um, the LGBT Asylum Project, which is. Um, I like to refer to them as my savior. They were the people who helped with my asylum case and made it as smooth as possible. And um, that is why I'm a big supporter of the LGBT asylum program. And they, they make this job so much easier for people like us who otherwise would have had like a really, really tough immigration process. But um, thank, and thank God for people like um, 
Orkanshagen um, and the LGBT Asylum Project, it made um, the asylum um, procedure like very smooth and easy for me. I, it, it wasn't as tough as a lot of people had it because I had these people in my corner and, and, and I'm very grateful for that. And that's um, basically how um, my journey hasn't been that tough because of them. And that is why um, I like to point that out. A lot of people had it tough, but mine hasn't been that tough because I had them in my corner and, I, and it's something I, I, I taught to highlight. So thank you for giving me that opportunity. Thank you all for being here and for sharing. And yes, you're right. We will get into, um, you know, discussing the challenges and the experiences of uh, immigrants, migrants, asylum seekers, refugees in our community. Uh, I was thinking about this and I thought it would be good to kind of look at the history of the United States's uh, immigration policies. Because if we go all the way back and we realize, you know, uh, from the colonists' encroachment of native land to the Chinese Exclusion Act to the opening of Ellis Island, of course, both world wars and Mexican labor during the wars. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to bring it up now, but we will. And then you think about what's happening now in the administration and the president's, uh, in my opinion, war on immigrants. You know, there, there, there is this attitude or once this attitude that America is the land of the free. Um, if you're willing to embrace this great land, you could come here for a better life. And, and uh, that, is, that used to be an attitude or an idea that I grew up with, but quickly learned from the history of the United States immigration policy that uh, it's a racist history. And it really applies to who can be here. Uh, but one thing that did jump out is there's also a non-existent LGBTQI immigration policy in our history. And so I, I wanted to start there and, and uh, you know, get your perspective. And please, if you'd like, you can certainly talk about your personal experiences and how not having a specific LGBTQI immigration policy may have impacted you or can speak anecdotally uh, and historically of uh, what you know of our policies. So I'll begin with Mel. There we go, I unmuted myself. Thank you, Michelle. Um, actually, we should always remember our history, especially as LGBTQI people, because um, it's only very recently under the immigration law that we have a, a measure of equality, um, but policies and procedures often place us still in a very unequal position in logistics. But that said, um, you know, the first ever immigration um, act in America was as far back as 1886. And there's been so many different incarnations in the, and we had this big amnesty reform happen in the 80s as well. But was what I think is really important to mention, which was huge for the LGBT community, was for as long as we had the Defense of Marriage Act, which was only turned over with the Edie Windsor case, I think it was in 2013, 2014, um, that until that time we could, and we never had marriage equality, and immigration law is um, governed by the federal law, which meant that L tens of thousands of LGBT partners could not sponsor their beloved uh, partner who they wanted to be a spouse but couldn't marry um, 
because of the Defense of Marriage Act, which said one man and one woman could marry. And that when that was overturned and then when the Obergefelder case happened in 2015 and all the states were granted marriage, so we were all then able to sponsor our spouses as LGBT people for, um, for, for you know, green cards and ultimately U.S. citizenship. But until that time, there was absolutely no remedy whatsoever. And, uh, I mean, people actually committed suicide over it. It was so bad for couples who could not be together and see each other. So we've emerged from a very serious form of discrimination against our community. And that also spills over into the um, asylum seeker and refugee realm as well, because, um, you know, there are different ways now to get to America and be with your partner. And also for partners who are in a couple from overseas, if they were going to get asylum here before that time, it was harder to to come in on a familial basis and then it is now and now that is a little bit easier so the history is really really important I for one personally experienced the discrimination of being a lesbian with uh, two children and in a marriage where my partner was actually um, until we were able to get married and until Doma fell my partner was deportable and which would have separated me from one of my children it's a long story that I don't want to go into but it is it was that bad um, right now as far as the history and the, the trajectory is concerned we desperately need immigration reform. We, there's so much by way of reform that we need. I'm not going to go into what I think we need right now, but except to say that whenever you're looking at reform and improvement and change, you always have to look at the history. And that, and I'm fully understanding it and looking at um, the negatives of it and how you can use that to advocate for the future becomes critical. We are only going to stand a chance of getting... Um, uh, immigration reform in this administration leaves and let's hope they do because this administration is not friendly to asylum seekers and refugees and LGBTQI people in general and so um, if I'm in a city and say anything today not one single vote is unimportant everybody must vote and if you're interested in proper immigration reform you have got to vote for a democrat Thank you so much, Mel. Klaus, you'd brought up, you know, to, uh, your a uh, couple things about your experience in uh, coming here to the United States. But yeah, what are what are your thoughts when we talk about the United States? And you know, we have this idea, this attitude. It's the land of the free. But when you start to understand um, immigration policies of the United States and face the challenges as an LGBTQI person, let's sit, hear your perspective on it, on its history of it being racist and non-inclusive. Yeah, thank you very much for that question. And basically, it's we we perceive. That's what we've been told all the years that America is the land of the free, and it's. But getting into this land of the free is like really tough. Like I was one of the very few ones who, because um, I have a lot of friends back home, I have a lot of family and people back home who can't even get into the country to even seek asylum, because you have to be here first to be able to seek asylum. So the visa process and trying to get into this country is like it's it's almost close to impossible. And, um, but because I was one of the 
privileged few that was able to get my visa, which was a lot of process. The process of getting the visa and um, going through the interviews is like, it's a huge long process that not every person can get into. And that was where I had my biggest um, struggle. But as soon as I got that, getting into here, I, the, the, the immigration, the process is not an entirely easy. I was, I was able to be able to afford a lawyer when I first moved here and paid all the ridiculous amount I had to pay to help with the process. But even with that, I couldn't still get anything done and until I came in contact with them, um, the LGBT Asylum Project, which took off, took the, um, the burden away from me. And I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't get to be involved in all the processes because they took it away from me. They did everything for me. And all I needed to do was share my story and go for my interviews and had um, things. So, uh, like, for me, I, I keep telling people my immigration story was pretty easy because of the LGBT Asylum Project. And that's why I, I talk about them all the time. I try to get people to support them because the burden they took away from me and a lot of um, people that I know and all the people that they keep handling their cases, the burden they took away from us, they shielded us from all the immigration um, disparities and things that um, the immigration stories and all the processes that are wrong and that need a lot of reform. They shield us from all of that. And so we don't get to experience it as much as we are meant to. And so that's uh, one of the things, one of the reasons I keep highlighting them because I didn't get to um, be part of all the intricacies because um, they took that away from me. And it's, it's, that's, that's how my, my journey has been so far. So it wasn't that tough for me because I had someone in my corner who was able to take that all away from me. And that's, um, that's it for me. Thank you, Klaus. Remy, Anjali. I go by both Anjali or Remy. Yeah, like, <laughs> we're so close. Say, I get to call you both I names. Know, <laughs> but I also want to kind of anecdotally say that you know we come here to this country, and most people in South Asia change their name from Bob to Tim. So maybe I should go from Remy to Rene or something. But I stay very authentic to my roots, like most of us like to. Um, you know, there is a real comparative that I want to draw here of how America exists for immigrants compared to other countries. I've lived in Canada. I've lived in Singapore. I'm originally from India. I can, ta- I can from, uh, kind of say what Klaus mentioned, saying this is the land of the free, but to get into this land, you have to pay a huge tax and a huge fine. And I can tell you that between my immigration, between America and the U.S., my ex-husband's immigration, my parents' immigration between here and Canada, I have spent over $180,000 in immigration fees, lawyer fees, because there is no LGBTQ policy that is straightforward, existing, or something that I can even comprehend and get past. So I think that's how horribly pathetic our policies are. Case in point, early last year was the first time I was able to change my green card gender marker to not say male and to say female after 17 years of being myself in this country. And it was because of a policy and ordinance that passed with the previous administration a day before 
this new administration was sworn in in 2016. So that is how teeter-tattering we are around these policies that exist in this country. I do want to go back and say I am from South Asia. South Asia is the only place in the world where we are called South Asians because we were taken by the East India colonized folks, put across anywhere in the world, and people started referring to us as South Asia. So as we grow up, this is the dream that we are compared to. This is a Christian status to come up to the U.S. and make something big out of yourself. But how can you when you're trans? And how can you when you are judged by your identity beyond your capability and your education? So is the system great? No. Has it changed? Definitely not. Was it very difficult for me? Yes. I could give you stories after stories from being stopped at the border, being stripped naked because my gender marker didn't match my, my immigration document to being asked to leave an interview and show up in a male dress because I did not, again, comply to the gender marker, to having my citizenship application go into a black hole for three and a half years before I could be told. And I'll finally say that even if policies don't exist, the continued lack of understanding and capabilities and sensitivities of the immigration officers makes it so much harder. A group of trans women artists were to come to America uh, to organization that I work in, to Paribar, and they were all denied temporary entry into this country on the grounds that they were not married. If that is not an irony, I don't know what else is. So I'll pause there and say that we have long ways to go. Yeah, and we, and we will definitely get into, you know, the... Uh... The discussion, especially looking at it from an intersectional lens. So, Edwin, finally, I had uh, mentioned, you know, Mexican labor for a reason during the the wars, and I mentioned a lot of ethnic groups. It seems like, you know, the U.S. Uh, immigration policies and the history of it is, you know, we want you here when we need you, and then when we don't need you, we're going to kick you out or, uh, you know, criminalize you. Uh, love to hear from you and, and, you know, expand on that, especially a voice for the Latinx community. Yes, thank you, Michelle. I think this is a really good point to start um, drawing the parallels as to what the uprising that's happening right now. And as we know that our laws are inherently racist and they're rooted in white supremacy. So this question, as Michelle, as you were mentioning, is, um, you know, the deserving versus not deserving. It's what's convenient for the country. And this, this concept of citizenship has always been created to exclude the other. And it's also talking about you know, uh, we talk about the fees and we talk about the expenses um, to come to the country. Um, and it's always about the rich versus the poor. And we know that public charge was just announced not that long ago, where, you know, if you are poor, you, you know, and if you are a public charge, you, there's no pathway for you to adjust. So we have to, t I think, take a step back and really understand that. And also talking about, you know, um, how are these laws are rooted in racism, white supremacy, um, and, you know, and, and one thing that I think advocates across, the, at least in the Bay Area and across the, the country, you know, are a little uh, skeptical of this immigration reform concept because there are always carve-outs. There are always excluding people for um, the ability to, uh, to live and, and be a part of, of society. And, and again, we, 
we can discuss and we can have their lectures and classes on how the U.S. Um, and uh, the uh, war, um, this war on terror, this war on drugs, bombing Southeast Asian countries, bombing and and uh, there's you know coups in, in, in Central and South America. Uh, you know the U.S. deploys this you know traumatizing terror, and folks are are forced to, to migrate to safety. And, you know, given that uh, folks arrive to the U.S. and then are put into detention facilities, the trauma that that has are released into the community with no support, as we know. And so then, then you know, there's like, there, if you're low income, if you're poor, then there's uh, quality of life crimes that folks have uh, commit or you know, have to sustain themselves, and then the U.S. still criminalizes them. And at that point, is it that person's fault um, for, um, you know, for quality of life crime, and then later down the line are not able to adjust or even remotely be able to apply for any type of immigration relief? So I think it's really important for us to, and those are the the connections that we need to make um, between what's happening currently in this uprising and the Black Lives Matter movement and also the immigrant rights movement. It's one and the same. I just very quickly, I wanted to touch upon um, the uh, uh, a, a case about uh, these two individuals. Um, last in 2018, uh, I was uh, on the caravan uh, from Central American migrants that came up to the border and I met two young uh, boys in Puebla, Mexico, um, who at that point, you know, um, were fleeing because of violence from a family from community members because they were suspected to be gay. And when I asked them, you know, are you, you know, are you of the LGBT community? Are, you know, do you think you're gay? Do you, you know, asking the, in 20,000 questions, you know, even they couldn't articulate what that meant because in the U S our concept of gender and sexuality is so, so much different than the concept of sexuality in Central America, in uh, Chad, in, in Africa, in Southeast Asia. So I think, you know, we need to really take a step back and really take that historical context um, in, in mind as in, and learn from that as we move forward. So we don't exclude, you know, uh, individuals who are still traumatized by the U.S.'s uh, wars uh, uh, overseas. And we don't um, make sure we don't criminalize community, communities for basically surviving. And as, a, as LGBTQ folks, we know survival is something that, that we grow up and, and we learn. So I think it's really important for us to, to acknowledge that. So I'll stop there because we can go on and on. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I was like, oh my gosh, we have four powerhouses. We're going to talk on this topic of LGBTQI and uh, immigration, migration, refugee and asylum. Um, we do have some questions coming in from our audience. So thank you for those who are tuning in. Keep them coming. We love them. We like to be engaged. I see that uh, Melanie, you want to add something very quickly before we ask some questions from our audience? Yeah, I think... Um... Uh, what Edwin is also um, sort of piggybacking on, on a lot of what Edwin was saying. Uh, for me, something huge came up the moment I saw that police officer's um, knee on George Floyd's neck. And um, I saw what came out of that and all the systemic racism was just suddenly in our face. And I re- remember a few of the asylum seekers and refugees 
that African Human Rights Coalition has worked with prior to them getting to the United States of America um, have actually been racially profiled. There was one young um, refugee who was simply walking in the street somewhere in North Carolina and a police officer said, you know, questioned him for no reason other than the color of his skin. And after what happened to George Floyd, you know, we all know that this police brutality has been going on, but this really brought it to our attention in a very different way. And I realized here I am, a country conditions expert, testifying as an expert witness in the American immigration courts as to why a person who's been persecuted in an African country such as Uganda, why that person should get asylum in the United States of America, only to realize that is this truly a safe place for anybody of color, given what's going on? And this is this huge anomaly that is facing us right now. So here comes this whole thing of racial reform, anti-racism, all of that taps so deeply into actually us advocates saying, this is a country of, of safety. This is a country of sanctuary. It is not, and it has never been, and it never will be until the systemic racism and, and is, is dealt with and, and our justice system is transformed, our immigration system's transformed, and we all need to become anti-racist in this process. Thank you so much for that. One of the questions, um, I'm just going to, you know, put it out there, but I want to give you some context too. Uh, One of our audience members asked, do any of you ever wish you had migrated to a different country than the United States? And if so, which one and why? Uh, But before you answer that, I think, you know, also share, uh, just go into the, the experiences of an LGBTQI person, um, when they're going through the immigration process or applying for asylum and the specific challenges you face. Like right now we do hear stories uh, from, you know, like transgender law center sharing stories of trans women being placed in, um, you know, uh, when they're detained, they're caged with, uh, with men and not with women or um, being treated horribly. Like I'm, I'm in inhumane treatments of LGBTQI people right now. Um, so open up with that. Open up with what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing. Specific treatment of LGBTQI folks uh, who are immigrants, refugees, or asylum seekers. And then, for those of you who are here and you went through the process, if you ever thought about, well, maybe I should have found a different country to live and call home. Um, we'll start with Anjali. Yeah, I relate a lot to that because, as I said, I was trying to find a home. And I want to really say I found my home second time around. Um, because California was where I wanted to be, and I've been here for four years. But it took me seven countries in 11 states and three, uh, seven states, 11 cities, and three countries to get here. Um, I will say that being in Canada and most of my transition as a trans woman happened in Canada. I can say that from an LGBT perspective, Canada is far ahead when it comes to the policies around trans inclusion, trans dedicated resources. They are not perfect by any means, but they are far superior to what we have in the US from a policy standpoint. I will say that LGBTQ 
existence, prevalence, acknowledgement in those policies when it comes to immigration is only now getting better. Almost on the same pace, if you go back to history uh, uh, in the last few years, that Canada and US both started having more flexibility around gender markers, more flexibility around same-sex immigration. And so, you know, my, again, I go back to saying that because I've lived in both here and the US for a good chunk of about 10 years each, if you can round up. And what I can say is that individualism is really key in this country. And so, you know, when you're LGBT, or at least for me as a trans woman, I wanted to be visible and I wanted to be present. And the systematic oppression, whether it's racism or whether it's an immigration status, didn't allow me to do so. But in a country like Canada, it is about your identity. And immigration, immigrants make up 57% of Canada's population. So I'm not saying people, let's move to Canada, because we got to stay here and make this country better. Uh, but I will say that from that perspective, I have thought about moving back to Canada, especially about right now when things look so uh, not possibly uh, uh, positive, I would say. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that nowhere in this world is it okay, is it safe, is it welcoming, is it accommodating, and it's conducive for an LGBTQ folk, especially trans people of color, to be considered and go through the immigration system. Thank you. Klaus, you have a very uh, different experience, and you're, you're leaving a place of persecution, of persecution of LGBTQI people, and, um, and then I'm sure of it, and even just your, your journey faced other challenges coming to the United States, but you had an incredible organization who was very supportive of you. And when we're talking about um, LGBTQI asylees, what can you say about, you know, what the, uh, the, the challenges an, an asylee would face as being an LGBTQI person? And if you would, would leave and move to a different country, had you known the challenges you would, you would receive here too? Yeah. Um, thank you for that question, and then, But um, basically, before ever migrating to America, we, we hear um, things like America is the land of the free, but I haven't felt free since I moved here because the system is, um, is not built for a black man to succeed and a black immigrant man to succeed or a black immigrant LGBT man to succeed. It's, it's, everything is against you in this country. It's, it's so systematic that um, like um, throughout this period, one of the um, videos that I watched online that impacted me um, that affected me the most because I had experienced something similar was the video of um, the current lady that was in the park with someone with the black guy that told him of oh, um, leash your dog and she had to he said I'll call the police and I'll tell them an African American man is harassing me and I've had a very similar situation where someone used their white privilege against me because to call the police because I was black. And I'm like, 
I only, I'm only correcting you. Let me, let me give the story or the situation where this happened. I used to work um, in a resort somewhere in Utah because I used to live in Utah. That's where I lived in before I moved here. And I had this, I was, I worked as a night manager in this resort and um, I had this group of girls who came into the um, facility and um, they were using the pool past um, uh, the time that the pool closes. And I went to tell them, I said, hey, um, you guys need to leave because um, it's past the time that the pool is open and, um, and you're disturbing other guests because the pool is like close to a lot of rooms. And so they called the police and said I was harassing them sexually. And I'm like, you are in your underwear. There's no way I would have, I would have, um, I would have asked you to, that's what you were wearing at the pool. And I asked you to leave. I couldn't have said it any other way. And they, they took that advantage. And the police came and I'm like, hey, I, I'm not even in the position to harass them sexually or assault them sexually because I'm not even interested in women. I'm a gay man. I'm interested in guys. And this was, it was because of my sexuality that I was able to diffuse the situation. But being that they had that privilege of being a white woman and being able to call the police on me because I was a black man and the reaction of the police when they came, it's, it's, it's crazy. So you, you find out that this country with a lot of, um, 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 all the systematic racism, all the police brutality and things, it's, it's, it's very ingrained in the society that it's a black man or a black immigrant or an LGBT immigrant, black in particular, is programmed to fail. You're programmed to, um, to, be, to be in a box. You're put in a box. And, and the, the social stereotypes, they're like people, um, I remember right now and I work for a different company. I work in, I work in San Francisco. But still, trying to get to a um, um, step up to a, a higher position in the office, you find out that you have to work three times or four times as hard because there are a lot of things that are against you. You go for a position, they tell you, oh, no, no, you have to do this, do that, do that. But you find out that the person who eventually gets the position, you have more, you, you, you have more results than the person. But as a result of um, being, being, being in that um, social category, people, people look down on you and they don't... Um, they don't give you the, the, the opportunities to grow. So it's being that I, I came in here to live my best life and, and enjoy the freedom and be part of the American dream. I haven't, I haven't had that um, play out for me as a black LGBT guy. So um, I, I, try to, I try to live above all this. And, and, and it's, it's, you find out there's a lot of things that need um, reforms and need um, to, and not being able to be part of the system in such a way that I can contribute my very best is it, it affects you. It's very traumatic. It affects you a lot in a lot of ways. And so one of the things that I, I tell people, because um, I'm still an asylee for right now and I haven't, I haven't become a citizen. And so I don't have an opportunity to vote so I, I usually, I, I sensitize people. I talk to people out there I, I, through social media, through one-on-one. I, and I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to get every young person to vote for the right people. Vote on your local level, vote on, on the state level, vote on the federal level, and begin to make those reforms. Re research the candidates, 
find out their stories, know the right candidates to vote for, and begin to call in and make sure that these reforms come into place so that America becomes a place where everybody has equal opportunities and we're able to, to live out our best life. And that way we're able to make um, the necessary changes to, to move this um, country forward. And yes, your question about um, could I have um, I migrated to a different country? Yes. Having, if I knew the things I knew now, Definitely, I wouldn't have come to America. I would have gone to, I have friends who migrated to Germany and friends who migrated to, to, to Canada, like um, 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 my co-panelist was talking about earlier. So um, those are the countries I, I would have considered because I, I, I feel like the immigration um, laws and um, the system is more favorable in those um, countries than here. But um, we are here now. And so what we have to do is... Um, fight to make the necessary changes and reforms um, that would favor um, LGBT asylum um, seekers and immigrants. So um, that's. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And like, I, I almost like I'm sitting here, like, I just want to quit. I'm so heartbroken, you know, um, there's these continuous stories, but at the same time, of course, feel feel hope because I know like folks like all four of you and organizations like the LGBTQ Asylum Project, uh, San Francisco Pride. I mean, these are platforms for us to hopefully make some of those changes. Um, Edwin, you have a very probably a different uh, way to describe it, but uh, what Klaus had talked about experiences here in America. I mean, there was like I think the number is two hundred million um, undocumented folks in the United States, and of the two hundred million, or I think that number refers to DACA recipients or uh, you know deferred children um, of those who came. So you came at a very young age, and now you're probably like twenty to thirty years old. And of the two two million, where are my numbers? Where are my notes? It's like I wrote this down. In California, but I, I, DACA is almost about a million. It's two million. Sorry. Million. Yes, of of deferred actions for childhood arrivals. Um, I think the the guess is that there's a about two hundred fifty thousand who identify as LGBTQ. So when you start to even layer that undocumented LGBTQ and a person of color in uh, a country built on systemic racism. What, what are some of those experiences? You know, I, I'm going to talk about um, this anecdotally um, and given the different spaces that I'm in. So actually, um, any given Monday from now, uh, we will be, uh, the Supreme Court will issue a decision on the way the Trump administration eliminated the DACA program, um, along with a potential decision on LGBTQ discrimination as well from the Supreme Court, as we're talking about this intersection. Um, but I think it's really important for us to realize and to understand that DACA and these, um, uh, and they're not even status, these are just a Band-Aid solution. This, is, this came because um, our elected officials, our government, has, they've consistently failed to act. Ooh. They consistently have othered uh, communities across the country. And so one thing that we should really, I think, focus on is the fact that even though that there is a million or the whatever number, um, Michelle, that you have provided, um, there are still over 11 million undocumented people in this country, you know? So we talk about, again, you know, reforming and X, Y, Z. It's just get rid of it. Get rid of it. Reforming the system 
is going to get you the same thing because again it's rooted in white supremacy it's rooted in racism and so i think what's happening in to to bring up what's happening right now in the bay area and across the country as we're preparing for um this daca decision um is looking beyond that is looking at the carceral system looking at the systems that again continuously criminalize criminalize youth black and brown youth constantly and that criminalization will make you ineligible for a program like daca and sure. daca has also packaged uh, uh this this uh palatable immigrant to the mainstream uh public so it's like in order for the country to accept who you are as a person you have to be a surgeon you have to be a harvard uh a student you have to be this perfect immigrant we are people who make mistakes we're people who come from different backgrounds we're people who have different levels of trauma that we face as lgbtq individuals especially trans and queer black and brown trans and queer individuals that again who fought for this same program and at the end of the day we're unelig- we're ineligible to res- to obtain um that band-aid solution so we talk about voting voting is i'm 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 not going to discredit voting obviously voting does a lot for us However, we must continue to organize. We must continue to educate. We must continue to ask questions and, be, and think critically of what's happening right now. And again, just as we are, um, you know, we're building these bridges and we're deepening our work in, this, in racial justice and uplifting Black Lives Matter and the uprisings, we have to also acknowledge that we need to break down these systems of policing and not just defund the police, abolish the police, including ICE. And ICE, in this case, again, we're, we're talking about these cases of individuals um, who are in detention. Um, you know, right now, there, there are battles that are, ha- that are, that are, that are happening um, with two private detention facilities in California that are holding people for profit, right? So we talk about like DACA is one thing. There's also all these different layers that we have to think about and we have to support. So these are not movements that work in silos. These are movements that work together. Um, So I just wanted to, to add that. Thank you. Thank you. It makes And that's exactly why we're having this program is we really want to give people a deeper, uh, you know, look insight into the issues that impact our community. Uh, Mel, you'd be a great person to answer this question. Um, but uh, one of our audience members, and again, thank you for sending them. So if you're joining us, yes, send comments, questions, join us in on the conversation. We want it. Uh, but an audience member wants to know how much does it cost to go through the U.S. immigration process, which is different, you know, depending on your situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, that that's a crapshoot, and I'll tell you why. We we don't. Everybody's different. Um, there are here's an interesting fact: in when Donald Trump came out with his first executive order. Uh, and that was in January 2017. I don't know if you all remember, but a huge amount of lawyers descended on our um, airports and they were carrying signs saying, we'll represent you for free. We'll be your pro bono lawyer. There was a huge uptick in um, lawyers coming forward. I remember joining a Facebook page where virtually in 48 hours, over 200,000 lawyers had signed up to offer their pro bono services. So people have been incensed by the executive orders, the Muslim travel bans, um, 
all the difficulty that Trump has caused and his administration has caused law-wise, executive order-wise, policy-wise for um, the, the entire immigration milieu. So depending on your circumstances, there's always an opportunity to seek out pro bono legal work. And organizations such as African Human Rights Coalition we look for pro bono lawyers for you and we look for your whole team that will help you, for example, in your asylum case. But there is such a, that question is very wide because there's such a huge realm of immigration law. There are immigration lawyers that charge $650 an hour. Mm-hmm. And somebody's got a high tech job and they can come in on one of those kind of visas, you might pay tens of thousands of dollars to get a good legal representation. And Jali mentioned um, how much it cost her. Um, and, and, and Klaus mentioned that at first he put out money until he found the organization that he's working with. So um, it, it, it's, it's so, so varied, but I will say this, that when you walk into a lawyer's office and you say, I need blah, blah done, and you've got, uh, you know, um, income or you've got money, or even if you don't, initially, a lot of lawyers are going to say, well, for this, and this is more so in immigration law, they're very able to encapsulate. So if they, you say, I'm coming to you for a K-1 visa, or I'm coming to you to do my citizenship, I already have my green card. I mean, I'm oversimplifying here. Or I'm coming to you for my asylum case. More often than not, the lawyer will be able to give you an amount, sometimes a ceiling amount of how much your case will cost. So it's very individual. It depends entirely on what it is you're seeking in the immigration law department and how complex your case is going to be, how long it's going to take. There are opportunities for getting um, free legal advice. Um, It's unlikely if you're earning $300,000 a year or um, $150,000 a year, that, you know, it's probably not fair really to ask for pro bono Mm -hmm. and to leave the pro bono services to people who come here with absolutely nothing. And in my work, for example, we deal with a lot of asylum seekers. They come here with nothing, nothing. They're looking for a couch to sleep on. Unlike refugees, when a refugee comes, excuse me, through the UNHCR, excuse me, through the UNHCR system, a refugee is given government money when they arrive and a monthly stipend for a particular period of time up to almost about a year. When an asylum seeker comes, more often than not, they have no money at all. They spend their last cent on that air ticket or that hotel to get them to be able to come here and meet people. And then they're scrambling and there are no resources and no facilities other than if our LGBT community comes forward and says, I have a couch to offer. Or if um, I'm actually finding a lot of the faith-based affirming communities have stepped up to the plate very nobly um, for asylum seekers, possibly in my experience, almost, you know, the, even the heterosexual affirming community, even more so than the LGBT community. But often that's also because a lot of LGBT people don't live in houses or, or spaces that are big enough to take on a fellow LGBT person who has absolutely nothing. So um, lawyers, back to the lawyer fee thing, it, 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 it's very subjective. And lawyer's fees can go anything from $50 an hour in a clinic or even from pro bono to $50 an hour to $650 an hour, depending on the nature of the case. 
Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And I can't believe it, but we are like, (laughs) we've got five minutes left in the program. I feel like there's so much more to talk about. Um, The last question, and each of you got about a minute to answer it. uh, We had some questions come in from the audience who really wanted to know kind of what we can do about, you know, the injustice our communities face. And some of you have mentioned, you know, voting is important. uh, Reform is important dismantling the racial injustice or the systems that oppress others in this way is important. So a minute with your last thoughts on how we, uh, what we do and uh, how we move forward. Uh, We'll start with Anjali. Um, I think we have to de-stigmatize, take it out of way that exists within our LGBT community. And I'll just take the reference of the South Asian community, which primarily comes through technical education and comes through the legal process of immigration. It doesn't allow us to perceive and have a bias against those that come into this country and are undocumented. So it's important for us to not become part of the issue by calling people illegal or legal. And so I think that's the first step I would ask my own community to begin with because you know the challenges of us not coming together really begin there and once we understand that this was nobody's land this was the indigenous people's land that we are all coming to live in and that no one person is superior just because you have a tech job over the other and so i think that's what i want to really say to most of my api community and you know is that because that's what i've really seen impact me The second piece I will say is that for us to continue to have the visibility of ourselves as LGBT, rather than having to disguise it as a techie, as somebody's wife, as somebody's um, employer, to be able to fit the mold of immigration in this country. We have to be vocal. And it took me over a decade and a half to truly say to an immigration officer, and my citizenship interview that, yes, I'm a trans woman of color. I have been so closeted about that when it came to immigration. I was so petrified. So we have to put that in the forefront. And I know that there is an element of nerve anxiety and nervousness, but I think that's important to do. So I would say those are important pieces along with just making sure that we connect and we vote and we organize as others. Thank you. Mentioned. Thank you. A minute, Edwin. Thank you. I, I wrote a couple things down. This is These are like really tangible things that individuals can do. One, become a monthly donor to one of the uh, uh, nonprofit organizations providing support and geolegal services being one of them. Become a sponsor. Open your home for an LGBTQ individual seeking asylum. Two, three, donate your services. If you can translate, donate your services. If you can write uh, uh, letters of support, do that. Also, provide transportation. There are individuals who need transportation to and from court. Um, also, um, you know, depending on COVID and, and how immigration courts are opening, attend an immigration court uh, proceedings. They're open to the public, bond hearings, pack the court. Injustices happen when there's no one there. So I encourage you all to, to, uh, to join. And also, uh, please, if you can, um, there is a, a fundraiser for Omar Yaidi, uh, a Black LGBTQ um, asylum seeker who was released and, and is living in San Francisco, um, and the GoFundMe is uh, is public now. So please uh, donate to him. Thank you, Edwin. Mel, a minute. 
Let me add on, um, endorse everything that everybody else has just said, all extremely valid points. And if anybody's into donating, African Human Rights Coalition is definitely on that list of need. That said, don't forget the people on the back end, the refugees who are stuck, because there's no pipeline open right now, not only just because of COVID, but also because of the Trump policy. So I'm urging everybody to add on to what you've all said is awareness, advocacy, sensitivity. Please look at all of our sites, look at what we're doing to advocate for and, and, and take heed with these calls of action because we need you, the American citizen who can vote, to hold the politicians accountable, to speak to the senators. Don't turn your back because you're not the immigrant or you once were and you no longer are. We need all of you to come forward and to be fully aware of all these laws. Refugee numbers have gone down to nothing. That's not the America I know or want to know. We need to open up those refugee numbers the minute we're able to travel again. And I hope you're all... Um, on board for making sure that you hold your senators and Congress members accountable for that. Mm-hmm. And Klaus, last but not least. Yeah, um, so I, I, I agree with everything everyone, everybody said, but um, one of the things, um, because of how um, um, organizations like this um, have made um, my immigration process easy, I, I, I urge people to um, support these organizations like the LGBT Asylum Project, um, like um, Michelle's um, um, African Coalition and something. I, I, I'll get all the details. Later, African but, Human yeah. Rights Coalition. African Human Rights Coalition. So support these um, organizations because they make life easier for people like us. Then if you are able to vote, ensure to cast your vote. It is very important. I can't overemphasize that. It is very important that we stand up for what we believe in. One of the ways to stand up for what is believed is to vote. Please vote, vote, and vote. And get off this the misogynist we have as a president out of office. Get the right people into your local offices and state offices. And so we can do, we can, we can move forward as a country and heal as a country. So it's important that you support organizations, open your homes, like um, Edwin said, and support these organizations. And most importantly, I can't overemphasize it, vote so that we can make this necessary changes. So thank you. And thank you to all for joining us. And I don't know about you, but I definitely do feel a whole lot more proud, proud that we have members like Anjali, like Melanie, like Klaus and Edwin in our community. So support the work that they do. Those four organizations, Parivar, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, Pangea Legal Services, the LGBTQ Asylum Project, and African Human Rights Coalition. Thank you to San Francisco Pride for being a partner in this wonderful Lavender series. We do have one more coming up, and that is June 25th at noon. It's going to be a wonderful conversation commemorating those being recognized for the 50th anniversary. We also have a couple additional programs uh, focused on AIDS 2020. The AIDS Memorial Quilt uh, discussion is happening June 15th, and you can check that all out and RSVP for those important talks at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Happy Pride Month, and we'll see you next time.